Hello, and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. This week's episode is going to be a little bit of an upcycle because I'm still researching for what will be next week's episode on the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. I have eight pages so far, and I guess I could have done a two-part episode, but I know most people don't like that, so next week's episode is going to be extremely long. But for this week, this is something I made for Patreon members back in October of last year. And just so you have a little bit of context, around that time I did a couple episodes on troubled teen boarding schools and the abuse children suffer at these places. And while researching that, I found three different individuals who had attended one of those schools or wilderness camps, then went on to murder someone in their family. So what you're about to hear is one of those cases involving a man named Christopher Sutton. So that's all the context you really need, and here we go. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Two days after Christopher was born in April of 1979, his adoptive parents brought him home. Because John Sutton was a successful lawyer, he and his wife Susan lived a lavish life in an upscale neighborhood near Miami called Coral Gables. Chris's troubling behavior started as early as preschool. At the age of seven, his parents adopted a second child, a girl named Melissa. As Chris grew, his behavior got worse and worse. He vandalized a teacher's home, dealt drugs, and had several run-ins with the law. John and Susan sent Chris to a boarding school, hoping it would help. It didn't, and Chris was eventually expelled. There was one last glimmer of hope, though. A psychiatrist who evaluated him recommended a therapeutic boarding school, Paradise Cove, in Western Samoa. His father stated, quote, We just had no control whatsoever over what he did and when he did it. This wasn't an ordinary boarding school. It was a boot camp that specialized in behavior modification, run by the WWASP. For the Sutton family, this looked like their last shot at getting Chris the help he desperately needed. Unfortunately, this was before the 48-hour documentary highlighting the school's abuse had come out, and it was before U.S. officials would tell parents not to send their kids there. So, in the mid-90s, at the age of 16, Chris Sutton was dragged out of his bed in the middle of the night by two strange men, who then took him to Paradise Cove. A year and a half later, Chris turned 18 and was entitled to be released from the facility, But John Sutton was a lawyer and knew how to legally keep his son there. So he and his wife got a court order to keep his son there until Chris had completed the program. In total, Chris spent 30 months, two and a half years, at Paradise Cove. And it cost his father well over 60 grand. On his 19th birthday, Chris finally returned to the Sutton's Miami home. According to his family, his behavior had actually improved, so they bought him a $300,000 condo and helped him start a business. But unfortunately, this business failed, and Chris resorted back to selling drugs to support himself. On November 29th, 2000, he was charged with malicious destruction of property and resisting arrest. I'm not sure if Chris did any jail time for this, but the case was closed by September of the following year. 
Now we're going to fast forward four years to August 22nd, 2004. On that day, the Sutton family threw a party to celebrate a couple things. Susan's 57th birthday, and the fact that John's law firm had won three big cases. These weren't your average little cases, too. John's law firm reached settlements totaling over $3 million, making their clients rich, and them all the more richer. Chris, who is now 25, and his fiancée, Juliet, stopped by to celebrate. But before I go into the details of this night, you need to know the positions that everyone in this situation held. John's wife, Susan, was a manager at his law firm's office. She handled a lot of transactions, including the firm's finances. Chris's fiancée, Juliet, had recently started working at the law firm, where she assisted Susan, filed documents, whatever was needed. Also there to celebrate that night was Teddy Montoto. Teddy was a longtime friend of John Sutton and a fellow lawyer. I'm not exactly sure when this occurred, but at some point they decided to go into business together, so Teddy became a partner after John offered him a share of the practice. At 9 p.m., Chris and Juliet left the Sutton's home to see a movie that started at 10. Teddy Montoto left shortly after them. Around 10.30 p.m., John Sutton was awoken by gunshots. He immediately flipped off the bed and called 911. He told the operator someone had come into his room and shot him, but he didn't know who it was because he couldn't see. The reason he couldn't see is because the gunman had shot John in the head, directly through his right eye. He blindly wandered to the front door and unlocked it for police, who immediately drove him to the hospital. When asked where his wife Susan was, John didn't know. John had slept in his bedroom, but because of his snoring, Susan had slept in the guest bedroom. John couldn't tell police who had shot him and whether or not they were still in the house. Officers didn't know what they were dealing with, so they set up a perimeter and called in the SWAT team. After clearing the home, officers came upon the body of Susan Sutton. She'd been shot several times in the face, torso, and arms. Crime scene investigators noted the point of entry was the couple's back sliding glass door. There were pry marks on the door, but they couldn't conclude for a fact that it had been pried open. Bullet casings matched a 9mm gun, and they all came from a single weapon. Investigators also noticed jewelry, wallets, cash, diamond rings, and other expensive items were out in plain view, but none of it had been taken. This ruled out a motive of robbery. Whoever killed Susan Sutton and attempted to kill John didn't want their possessions. They just wanted them dead. Possibly because if they were dead, the reward would be much higher than if the killer simply robbed their house. So within 30 minutes of John and Susan being shot, and before the SWAT team had even cleared the building, Teddy Montoto was on the scene. Obviously, officers questioned Teddy as to how he knew to come back to the Sutton's home. He said that around 10.30, he was on the phone with Susan when he thought he heard gunshots. Then the line went dead. Another red flag to officers. Why was Teddy on the phone with his business partner's wife so late at night? Investigators asked Teddy to come down to the station and give a statement, which he agreed to. They told him Susan was dead, and according to one officer, Teddy was genuinely upset. At some point during the interview, Teddy revealed to investigators that he had a weapon on him, a 9mm handgun, the same type of gun used in the murders. He said he had the gun because he'd been shooting at a range earlier that day, and he shot competitively as a hobby. Teddy said he shot his gun on a regular basis, and that would be the explanation if there was any gunshot residue on his hands. 
investigators immediately took the gun from him and put it in forensics for further testing. Even though these were all obvious red flags, officers didn't have enough evidence to hold him and were forced to let Teddy go. Back at the hospital, John Sutton was fighting for his life. After emergency surgery, doctors placed him into a medically induced coma. The following morning, Chris arrived at his parents' home, only to find crime scene tape. He'd missed a few phone calls late last night and decided to head over after his parents didn't answer. An investigator on the scene informed Chris that his mother had been murdered. He became emotional and teary-eyed, according to the officer. She proceeded to ask Chris where he was last night during the murders. Chris said he and Juliet were at a movie from 10 p.m. to 11.45. He then asked, do you want to see my ticket stub to prove where I was? This was obviously strange because no one had accused Chris of lying about where he was or killing his mother. Juliet was informed on the scene as well and became very emotional. When asked who could have possibly done this, she had one person in mind. Just days before the fatal shooting, a woman threatened to shoot up John Sutton's office or home. This was due to John winning a civil suit against a local business owner in town. The woman who threatened the shooting was forced to close down her business and sell most of her belongings to pay John's client over $100,000. Police interviewed the woman and confirmed her alibi, eliminating her as a suspect. A few days after the murders, John Sutton awoke from his coma and was told he'd be permanently blind for the rest of his life. Regardless, it was a miracle he survived after being shot numerous times, two of those being in the head. He wasn't told, however, that his wife hadn't made it. His family wanted him to make a full recovery, so they lied and said Susan was being operated on in a nearby room. Now that John was awake, investigators tried to get a description of the suspect. All he knew was that his attacker was dressed in all black, nothing more. Without a good description, investigators set their eyes on the first person who raised some red flags, Teddy Montoto. They asked him to come in for additional questions while hooked up to a polygraph machine. Even though polygraphs aren't 100% foolproof to determine if someone's lying, Teddy's results were suspicious to investigators. The examiner also noticed that Teddy appeared to be nervous and was profusely sweating during the test. When asked about his relationship with Susan Sutton, the examiner determined that Teddy was being deceptive. Investigators showed those results to Teddy, and that's what got him to finally admit the truth. Teddy had been having an affair with Susan, and for the sake of his business and personal relationship with John, he'd been hiding that from police. Forensic testing on his 9mm handgun further revealed that it was not the weapon used to kill Susan. If that wasn't enough, Teddy's phone records showed that he wasn't in the Sutton's home at the time of the killing. His alibi was solid, but so was Chris's. Surveillance footage showed him and his fiance at a movie during the murders. So if both of their prime suspects were cleared, who was left? After nearly a month in recovery, John was released from the hospital. Chris and Juliet moved into John's home to care for him as he healed and adjusted to being blind. During that time, investigators started digging deeper into the Sutton's inner circle to see who could possibly want them dead. That's when they found out about Chris's past arrests and troubles with not only authorities, but his parents as well. Specifically, they learned Chris's parents had sent him to an abusive school, Paradise Cove. Now, investigators could establish a motive. In their minds, Chris wanted to kill his parents because they sent him to the program. And on top of that, he'd be entitled to a large portion of his parents' estate when they were dead. 
Upon interviewing Juliet, she told police that Chris still harbored some anger about Paradise Cove, but it wasn't enough to incite violence and make him want to kill his parents. Besides, John and Susan were still supporting Chris and his fiance financially, so money-wise, they were very well off. Even though police had a motive though, they didn't have any evidence to arrest anyone. Months would pass until one day they got a phone call that would shift the entire investigation. A woman claimed that her daughter's ex had told her he was in the house on the night of Susan's murder. They got in contact with the woman's daughter and learned more about this ex. She told police that Garrett Cop came home on the night of the murders and told her he needed to burn his clothes. He then admitted to her to being involved in the shooting of John and Susan Sutton. With this new information, investigators made a connection. Garrett Cop knew Chris Sutton. Chris Sutton had made 300 phone calls to a specific phone number, and that number ended up belonging to Garrett Cop. On top of that, Chris had called Garrett just as he exited the movie theater the night his mother was murdered. Within 24 hours of the murder, Garrett was arrested by police on unrelated assault charges. Apparently, he'd been pointing his weapon at two men who managed to wrestle it away from him and call police. And that weapon was a 9mm Glock, the same type of gun used in the murders. Because the gun was already in police custody, they were able to compare forensics and conclude that this was in fact the gun used to commit the murder. Garrett was out on bail at the time, but easily brought in for questioning on an unrelated warrant. He denied any involvement in the murder, but once investigators showed him the phone records linking him to Chris Sutton, Garrett started to open up. They were also apparently being very threatening and intimidating, but yeah. The two had actually become friends after working at the same security company. At one point, they also lived in the same apartment building for over a year and eventually started selling drugs together. After breaking him down, investigators got Garrett to confess. He said he'd been hired by Chris to kill Susan and John Sutton. In a second interview with Juliet, she admitted that Chris was still harboring resentment against his parents for Paradise Cove and that she suspected he might have had something to do with the killings. She also said that in Chris's journal, he'd written about wanting to kill his parents for what they'd put him through. On March 16, 2005, John called police to have Chris removed from his home, fearing that his son had a weapon in his bedroom. Police arrived and didn't find a weapon, but they did find four ounces of marijuana and several pipes. Coincidentally, that's the same day police finally arrested 21-year-old Garrett Cop and charged him with murder. The following day, Chris was charged with four misdemeanors and two felonies for drug possession and selling. He immediately posted the $14,000 bond. Eleven days later, on March 28th, a warrant was put out for the arrest of Chris Sutton in the murder of his mother and attempted murder of his father. A week went by and police couldn't locate him. On April 8th, a man called police and said he believed to know the whereabouts of Chris. Apparently, he tried to sell a truck to this man and was only accepting cash. He gave the phone number to police that Chris had called from, which led them to a payphone six blocks from his apartment. 25-year-old Christopher Sutton was still at the payphone and arrested right there. Three months passed, and in June of that year, the Miami-Dade Herald released details about Chris's motive and behavior. Court records showed the following. Five years ago, in 2000, Chris made comments about wanting his parents dead to a co-worker while working as a plumber. The co-worker told police, I didn't sense any joking around whatsoever. He was dead serious. 
A year later, Chris asked a coworker how one could go about hiring a hitman. He apparently mentioned it again just two weeks before Susan's murder. Juliet told police he spoke openly about wanting his parents to be killed, and Chris assured her they'd be wealthy once they were gone. Juliet stated, quote, He said that things will be better when they're dead. I knew he was planning to kill his parents, I just didn't know when. End quote. Okay, pause. This turned out to not be true, according to Juliet. I ended up finding a video from the trial, and Juliet states that investigators lied, and that she never told them that quote. And she was very firm in her belief that she doesn't know if Chris killed his parents. Only Chris and Garrett know that. Why would you stay with him, and why would you marry him? I can't think of how many times I've heard somebody say, oh my god, I hate this person so much, I could, I could kill him right now. And when you hear it for six straight years, you just don't believe it. Finally, Juliet testified, detectives lied when they said she told them, I knew it would happen, I just didn't know when. I never believed he was going to do it, and that's why the whole thing with my statement that I knew he was going to do it, and which I've said I didn't know he was going to do it, I'm still confused about the whole matter. I don't know if he did it or not. Nobody knows what really happened except for him and Garrett. Thank you. And the interrogation wasn't recorded at all, so nothing either of them said could be backed up. But if investigators lied about that and Juliet is telling the truth, that's some crooked shit. So, six months later, in December of 2005, Chris's murder trial still had not started, but prosecutors were still releasing information that suggested he was guilty. It turns out that on the day Garrett was arrested, he implicated Chris in the shooting. And I believe that John Sutton was tipped off about this, and that's why he had Chris removed from his house, because police were like, hey, this man that possibly murdered your wife said he was hired by your son, who's still living with you. When the investigator asked why he shot Chris's parents, Garrett responded, Because my life was in Chris's hands. He told me he'd kill my son if I did not. And me. Garrett also said the killing was Chris's idea, and they had discussed it for about a month before it took place. In his own words, Garrett went through the sliding glass door, left purposely open by Chris, and to shoot both of the Suttons, Garrett used a 9mm Glock given to him by Chris. Garrett wasn't paid for the job. But according to several people that know Chris, he bragged before and after the murder about coming into a lot of money very soon. Court documents suggested that Chris had been planning his parents' murders as early as 1996, saying he would make them pay for sending him to Paradise Cove. A former student who was there at the same time as Chris told police he remembered him stating that his parents would have to pay for taking two years of his life. Apparently, several unnamed friends of Susan Sutton were interviewed, and they claimed that Susan told them that Chris had devised a written plan to kill her while at Paradise Cove. After Susan's murder, Chris tried to get his father to write him a blank check, put his name on the family's accounts, and be compensated for caring for his newly blind father. John Sutton refused all of that. Flash forward two years to February of 2007. By this time, there had been only one deposition in Chris Sutton's case, because the state's finances used to pay public defenders and everyone involved had run dry. They didn't have the money to put the case through a trial. Teddy Montoto, a main witness in the trial, who was John's business partner and Susan's secret lover, had actually died due to a heart condition as well. He passed in August of 2005 at the age of 41, just months after Chris Sutton was arrested. 
On February 27, 2008, Garrett Kopp's murder trial finally began, but it was short. In exchange for a 30-year sentence, he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and attempted murder. He also agreed to testify against Chris Sutton, which is huge for the state, because they didn't have any physical evidence tying him to the murder. It was all circumstantial evidence, and Garrett Kopp's own words. Chris Sutton's trial wouldn't start until six years after the murder, on July 7, 2010. You already know the prosecutor's argument. Chris wanted his parents dead so he could inherit their estate and get revenge for being sent to Paradise Cove. The defense's argument, however, painted a very different picture. They claimed that Chris had no reason to kill his parents because they supported him and treated him well. They said Garrett was in a drug-induced state when he killed Susan and shot John, that he wanted money for drugs and knew the layout of the home because he and Chris were friends, allowing him to visit the Sutton's residence a few times. On the third day of trial, Garrett Cobb testified against Chris. He claimed that they were both low on money, and that's when Chris devised a plan to kill his parents. He also promised Garrett 100 grand to carry it out. He originally, though, said he wasn't promised any money, that his life was just threatened. So that's a change from his initial statement. Garrett also claimed that Chris gave him $50 to buy an all-black outfit from Walmart to wear during the murders. Chris also gave him a quarter pound of marijuana and two pistols in exchange for a machine pistol. When Garrett had doubts about going through with the plan, he claimed Chris intimidated him and threatened to harm him and his young son. Before the shooting, Garrett smoked marijuana and took a number of Xanax pills. During cross-examination, Chris's defense maintained that Garrett's true motive was finding Chris's drug stash that he kept in the Sutton's home. They also insisted that the only reason Garrett implicated Chris was to avoid a death sentence after being pushed by investigators. Another motive that Garrett could have had to implicate Chris in these murders is that there was an incident in which Chris was caught with drugs and apparently implicated Garrett in that and got Garrett in trouble with police and got away scot-free. Not that Christopher was claiming to be a perfect son. In fact, he told the jury he was a drug dealer. Garrett Kopp was one of his best customers, but had good reason to turn on him. Why? Because years earlier, Christopher said, he turned police informant to get drug charges dropped. And who did he finger? Garrett Kopp. What happened, if anything, with your relationship with Garrett Kopp after he was arrested? I didn't speak to him for a while. Or he didn't speak to me, I should say, for a while. Was he mad at you? Yes. So, was it payback time now? Yes, says Christopher, it must have been. And thus, his theory of the murder. Christopher said he had nothing to do with it. Told the jury he never asked Cobb to kill his parents. Cobb made it all up. The police had it all wrong. What really happened, he said, was that Cobb stormed into the house that night to steal Christopher's hidden stash. Boxes full of drugs. So that's just another argument that the defense used is, you know, Garrett was getting revenge for Chris fucking him over basically when a drug deal went wrong and he ended up getting in trouble with the law. The state's last witness was John Sutton himself. He talked about his decision to send his son to Paradise Cove. He claimed that they gave him all the love and material possessions Chris could want, but it still wasn't enough. Chris rebelled. John stated, he wanted to set the rules to show he was the boss. We'd take him to school and he'd go in the front door and out the back. With the passage of time, it became more and more difficult. 
In response to the allegation of Garrett just wanting Chris's drug stash, prosecutors pointed out that Chris didn't have a key to the Sutton's home, and John said that's because they had some trust problems with their son. The room where Susan was killed was Chris's old room, which no longer had any of his old furniture inside, and prosecutors argued there was no way for Chris to hide drugs there. On July 16th, the defense presented their case and brought Chris to the witness stand. He claimed that even though his parents sent him to the boarding school, he never wished harm on them. Quote, I was very happy to see my parents. I cried when I got off the plane. Lots of hugs and kisses. Chris sobbed on the stand when recalling his time at Paradise Cove, so much so that the judge had to call a break. His father hired two retired police officers to grab him and take him to the program, which took several plane rides. Chris held firm on the stand that he never hired Garrett to kill his parents. According to him, he'd hidden two pounds of marijuana and some Xanax inside a box, and that was in the room Susan was sleeping. That box held the drugs and Chris's childhood train set. Chris also claimed that the reason Garrett kept calling him on the night of the murder was not to confirm the shooting, but to beg for drugs through slurred words. And before Chris even went to the movies that night, he told Garrett he didn't have access to the drugs, and that the drugs were hidden in his former room. Although Garrett claimed he and Chris were friends outside of their drug-dealing habits, Chris said the relationship was strictly business. Chris did, however, bond Garrett out of jail when he was arrested for assault 24 hours after the murder, and Garrett claimed that they were friends, that they hung out and played video games together. After both sides rested their case, the jury deliberated for 10 hours over the span of two days. On July 21st, 2010, they came back with a verdict. 31-year-old Christopher Sutton was found guilty of first-degree murder and attempted murder. The judge immediately sentenced him to serve three consecutive life terms, meaning he'll never get out of prison. Even though Chris was sentenced over a decade ago, this case isn't over. He's still appealing his conviction, and the latest filing I could find was dated September 8, 2021. And the reason he's still appealing it is because he and his lawyers believe another man is responsible for the murder of his mother. Well, they believe and know that Garrett Cop fired the weapon, but they think someone else hired him to do so. Specifically, Ted Montoto, John Sutton's former business partner and Susan's secret lover. I really wanted to get all 1,000 plus documents from this case so I could go into great detail. However, that would cost $733. Personally, I think court cases should be available for free to the public because if they cost this much money, that's really not available to the vast majority of people in the U.S. I did get 111 pages for free, though, somehow. And this document details a motion for rehearing by Chris's defense, as well as the court denying that motion on March 5th, 2020. And I'm going to go over this document with you all because I skimmed through it before writing up a script. And what the defense is presenting is definitely interesting new information that didn't come into Chris's trial at all. On page 13 of the motion, it states, Chris Sutton is currently claiming newly discovered evidence in the form of multiple witnesses who link both Garrett Cop and Teddy Montoto to their involvement in the killing of the Suttons. This testimony is not merely impeachment testimony against an already heavily impeached cop but his testimony of material facts of Montoto and Cop purchasing weapons and engaging in murder for hire. These newly discovered witnesses give a clear picture of what happened between Montoto and Cop. Had these witnesses been available at trial, the mountain of evidence against Montoto would not have been suppressed, but presented to a jury. 
to allow them to weigh all of the facts instead of only facts that incriminate a single party, namely Christopher Sutton. Based on the facts presented in discovery, the lawsuit against the estate of Teddy Montoto and the two newly discovered witnesses, it is clear that the initial prime suspect, Teddy Montoto, had not only a current motive to be the principal, but had the means and opportunity. Text messages between Susan Sutton and Teddy Montoto on the night of the crime were not admitted at trial. These text messages prove that there was a sexual relationship. Phone records and sworn testimony also prove that the two were on the phone together during the shooting. End quote. This next part details the last text Teddy sent to Susan, as well as his interview right after her murder. On Sunday, August 22, 2004, at 9.42 p.m., he texted her, quote, if you come, we will fuck. I have some fudge in the PM. Depends on the depots. End quote. And I think depots is short for depositions because Teddy is a lawyer, but I'm not entirely sure. Shortly after that text was sent, Teddy was on a phone call with Susan. The next text he sent was directly after the shooting at 10.30 PM. He said, I'm concerned. Let me know you are okay, please. End quote. And remember, Teddy said that he was on the phone with Susan when she was shot, and that the call suddenly disconnected. This next part is portions of Teddy's sworn statements to officers, including the questions he was asked. So when I say answer, just know that those are Teddy's words. Question. Did the fact that what you heard appear to be gunshots to you, did you worry at that point? Answer. I thought she had the TV on, so I didn't know. It worried me when I called back and nobody answered then it definitely worried me, because I know what gunshots sound like. Question. How do you know what gunshots sound like? Answer. Because I'm an experienced shooter. Question. When you got no answer at the residence, what did you do next? Answer. Jumped in my car and got over there as quickly as possible. And that's the end of the questions and answers. So after this part, the defense wrote, Quote, despite knowing what he described as what he thought were three shots very fast, he delays and never calls 911, but instead drives to the scene. They then bring up the fact that Montoto lied to the officers about his relationship with Susan Sutton and concealed the fact that he was carrying a 9mm handgun in his vehicle. The defense wrote, quote, Everything Montoto did, being deceitful and or suspicious on the night of the crime and the following day, was known by the police. Montoto's affair with his senior partner's wife was an obvious motive known to detectives. Montoto's ulterior motives are evidenced in the facts surrounding his recent embezzlement slash theft of hundreds of thousands of dollars from his senior partner and victim, John Sutton. Montoto used his sexual relationship with the other victim, Susan Sutton, a woman nearly two decades his senior, the office manager and money handler, to hide this crime. End quote. In this next part, the defense shows a bombshell that I didn't know about. Teddy Montoto and Susan Sutton stole over $200,000 from Sutton and Montoto's law firm, and this was without the knowledge or consent of John Sutton. Prior to the shooting in 2004, John had been suspicious of Teddy embezzling. The defense shows this by presenting John Sutton's sworn affidavit. A couple weeks before the shooting, John received a $1.3 million check. This required the signatures of two other people. Oddly, Teddy asked John to get those signatures that same night he received the check. John thought this was suspicious, especially because he couldn't reach Teddy or his wife Susan through the phone. 
Around that same time, Susan revealed to John that Teddy had hidden $30,000 in cash from one of his clients. John said he was shocked and asked how much money in total he'd taken. Susan said nearly $100,000. After the shooting and shortly before Teddy died, he told John Sutton that he'd hidden $35,000 in cash in his attic. John asked him several times to retrieve the money, but Teddy never did. On top of that, two separate accountants, including Sutton's own for their law firm, advised him that Teddy had hidden cash, but it was unclear where it came from or why he did it. And lastly, before Teddy Montoto died, the last thing he told John was that he had to make something up to him, and he had to discuss money. The defense then brings up the connection between Garrett Cop and Teddy Montoto. After several inconsistent statements, Cop says he was promised 100 grand in cash for killing the Suttons. The defense writes, This amount is extremely significant. What is the probability that Montoto would suddenly need access to $100,000 in cash and that Cop would happen to pick that amount? As the state pointed out, Occam's razor states, one should select the option with the fewest assumptions. Cop was expecting $100,000, and Montoto was the only suspect with $100,000 in this case who even had access to that kind of money. No assumptions are needed. Ultimately, this amount has been brought up again by a newly discovered independent witness and a friend of Garrett Cobb. End quote. So this next quote is from a man named Ryan Leightonen, a friend of Garrett Cobb, describing a shocking incident. Quote, Cobb pulled out a phone and showed me a pic of a lot of money next to a shoebox on a table in the kitchen. I thought he was talking shit, but then he showed me another picture on his phone of Teddy holding the shoebox in the same kitchen. End quote. Through police reports and written statements from Garrett Cop, the defense shows how the murder weapon was actually acquired. All of these state the same thing, that Cop found the gun in the glove box of a car he burglarized. This conflicts with what Cop said during the trial and what prosecutors told the jury. They wanted the jury to believe that Chris Sutton gave Garrett Cobb the gun. But more evidence points to the fact, at least the defense is saying, that Garrett Cobb just found this gun in a glove box after breaking into a car. Another witness, Dennis Smith, claimed he saw an interaction between Teddy and Garrett. Apparently, they were all out shooting guns together a month or two before the murder. This is what Dennis said, quote, Cobb asked me to fire so I dropped the clip and racked the slide, then handed it to him. He looked at it, then handed it to Teddy, and Teddy handled it quickly, but I could tell he knew how to handle a piece. He dry-fired it and handed it back to Cop. End quote. And because I'm running out of time, I'm going to start skimming through this a lot quicker because I want to get this out to you all by Monday morning. So, remember the plumber that used to work with Chris Sutton, who claimed Chris asked him how to hire a hitman? Apparently, that co-worker is a convicted murderer and drug dealer himself, and the only reason police knew about that former job is because Teddy Montoto told police about it. Chris's former fiance Juliet, was actually interrogated by police for 13 hours. She said they threw her purse across the room, slammed their fists on the desk, and grew increasingly aggressive because she wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. After 13 hours, and Juliet crying and screaming, she finally told officers what they wanted, that Chris always wanted his parents dead, etc. 
In February of 2008, Chris still hadn't gone to trial, but the state's case was still weak. So weak that they harassed Garrett Cobb's girlfriend for more info on the murder. And I don't like calling her a girlfriend because she was a minor, she was just 14 years old, and Garrett was 21. But if this happened in 2008, I think she was 17 when the police were harassing her. And she did end up getting her own lawyer and getting a protection order against police because she was being so harassed by them. The investigators interrogated her without a parent or lawyer present for over 12 hours, took her out of school, looked through her garbage cans, and attempted to strap the girl into a polygraph machine. And I'm going to end this motion by the defense with one of their last statements. Quote, The weight of the evidence is overwhelmingly against Teddy Montoto, evidence that is so compelling that it would produce a conviction against him should he have to stand trial especially if that trial were to be held in a vacuum, as the defendant's was, where all evidence against other possible principles was suppressed. Montoto repeatedly pointed law enforcement to the defendant. All of the evidence collected against Montoto was done without force or coercion, whereas nearly all of the evidence against the defendant was forced, coerced, or even paid for in the most precious coin known to man, life. <laughs> 